Okay, if you would open your Bibles, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16. And um, a suggestion about the book of Revelation. I, I think you evidently want to learn some things about it or you wouldn't be here. Uh, Revelation, there's a chart on the back table. It looks like this. And it says the tribulation, age of Israel... It's a chart of the end times. And it would be a good idea to pick this up and look at it from time to time because it lays out a sequence of events of uh, what is going on in the book of Revelation and connects the dots with some other uh, prophetic books like Daniel, coupled with Ezekiel. So you'll have some idea what the flow of things are. Uh, As I found going through the book of Revelation, I listened to people try to comment on it. I listen to people try to talk about the end times and frequently they have bits and pieces but do not have the big picture of prophecy of the last days. Well, that's that's a problem when you don't have a good sequence of events because right now when you tune into the prophecy channel, I guess you could call it the, the a lot of the... Uh, the people on the radio, television, they're drawing bits and pieces, but they don't fit an organized structure. Well, that's not the way our God does things. God speaks in an organized way. The word word means has content, it has meaning, it has organization. So the word logos itself has a definition to it. That's what it's about. When God reveals his plan, there's definition to it. There is clarity to it. Now, it may not be easy to understand, but there is a structure. And if you look, you can find the structure. You have to understand the way Jews thought to begin with, or you'll, you'll never understand Revelation. Why is, it put in this, why is it put in this sequence of events? Why does it jump from uh, chapter 7 to 144,000 to chapter 14, 144,000? What happened in the middle? Why is it in that order? Jews gave the bottom line the conclusion, and then gave you the reasons. Gentiles, Greeks like us, give you all the reasons, then they give you the bottom line. So it's a different way of thinking. Not that either one is right or wrong. It's just a different way of thinking. So you have to understand how John thought, how the Holy Spirit inspired this, and the fact that they thought in topics. Now when you understand that, you can understand how chapter 6 has uh, the... Uh, seal judgments as we know them the four horsemen of the apocalypse and they come about in a sequence and that is the topic that deals with the seal judgments but as you drill down farther you find out those things will go on throughout the tribulation those are ongoing issues that will happen throughout the tribulation when you get to the trumpet judgments, the trumpet's going to blow. That's a eris tense. It doesn't keep blowing, but it looks to a point in time. Certain things are going to happen. It talks about the trumpet judgments in chapter 8 and 9, and it gives them in a chronological sequence. You're going to find the bowl judgments in chapter 16, again, in a chronological sequence with things that fit in, in between. So you, fit the, you, you learn how to fit the things into the right time slots. Now a big part of the confusion uh, in the church as to the the issue of the tribulation has to do with people just trying to shuffle and deal things without considering other factors. Some will say Revelation 17 and 18, the the Babylon uh, chapters, uh, is the same Babylon, two sides of the same coin, spiritual side, physical side of the same entity. Some will say it's not even an entity. But if you read chapter 18, it says, after these things. What things? There was a destruction of religious Babylon in chapter 17. So there is a the political Babylon or economic Babylon of Revelation 18. There are two Babylons. It's the only way you can look at it and honestly deal with the the grammar that was revealed through the Holy Spirit. After these things I looked and behold. And you have a whole different Babylon. So we're trying to put this together. As mentioned, Revelation is a book that has over, they keep guessing how many allusions to the Old Testament there are. And they guess 350. No direct quotations out of the Old Testament. But as we see and as we're going to see, 
you have to have a pretty good grasp of the Old Testament, or this is you're just clueless going through this book. Now, what happens when you get some secular media person looking at this? This and they go, "Oh, I've heard of Armageddon. Where did I find our?" Oh, and they look it up on the internet and they find Armageddon, and then they find the the Valley of Megiddo, and the next thing you know, every battle that they're talking about in the Middle East is the Battle of Armageddon. That's because they haven't put it together with the rest of the passages that deal with the final wars of the last days. Or they'd understand that Armageddon is a campaign. It is a whole group of battles that go on with a culminating battle at the end of that war. So you have to, to allow for the words, not just extract something out and then try to build a doctrine or write a book about it. That's That's the problem that we run into. So I'm trying to take this a verse at a time throughout the book, put it in its context, but as you can tell, you're going to have there's going to be jumping around. Why does John jump in in uh, Revelation 7 and especially Revelation 14? Why does he talk about the rapture and the second advent one paragraph apart? Why does he do that? Cuz he's thinking topically. So what we'll find is that there are some things being revealed that will keep going on, other things that will happen while those other things are still going on. So if you lay a ruler vertically on this thing, you can get an idea of what's going on at the same time. Okay? That part of what the problem has been, again, is people just trying to take one or two things and build a whatever and sell a bunch of books off of it and it's it's scary that's not the way that we need to approach the scripture I think it's a very low view of scripture and I get really irritated with it so I may preach before we're done with this book but obviously trying to put together spiritual things requires spiritual thought process spiritual discernment 1 Corinthians 2 and to do that we need to, to ask the Holy Spirit to be our real teacher so as we approach this, blessed are those who read and hear the words of the book of this prophecy. We need to pay attention to the details. We need to pray for retention. We need to pray for recall so that as we read one passage, we won't have totally forgotten the passage that was just before it or in a previous chapter. And you say, well, I'm old. And I know all of us fit that and we tend to forget, you know, why we went into the bathroom <laughs> this morning. <laughs> <It was a laughs> I mean, okay, well, I know I'm in here for what? Was I going to shave or do something else? I mean, and so you got to find things, figure things out. But the, the Holy Spirit will overcome even our age. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> he can overcome even the things that aren't quite firing on the same level that they were at one time in our brain. He can do that, but we got to ask him to. As we get older, we ought to be more dependent upon him and stop trying to be so independent. Be more dependent on him. He'll help us remember what we need to so we can help others. So let's go in front of the throne of grace, put all the junk from the outside, leave it outside, because we're going to walk back into it whenever we leave. But let's try to get some good fuel and good training this morning before we do. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your test. Thank you for this amazing book. Father, we thank you for your plan. And we thank you that we are so blessed to be included in it. Father, it's such a privilege to be included in it, but it's a greater privilege still to have some concept of what we're doing here and what we're supposed to do while we are. So, Father, I pray that as we open up your words this morning, I pray that they'll be clear to us. I pray the Holy Spirit will help us remember them. I help the Holy Spirit, pray the Holy Spirit will help us to assemble them in our own heads so that we can have a grasp of what you have laid out to happen when. Some people even question why we should even spend time looking at this because it's for another dispensation. But Father, we know it's part of your, your word and we are blessed if we, if we read it and we understand it because we can help other people prepare for what is coming. And the best way to prepare is to believe in your Son 
then they won't have to go through it. But this provides us, and we thank you for the opportunity to have an explanation for those who ask about the faith inside of us. May we learn it and retain it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we are at uh, Revelation 1.16, and I'm going to start reading from uh, verse 11. Uh, we have, in verse 9 to 20, is the things that John saw, and here is where the instructions uh, start with John. He says, write in a book what you are going to see <clears throat> and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. As we know, because we've been through Revelation 2 and 3, these are seven hand-picked churches out of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. They were in kind of a circuit, but there were intentionally other churches we know were there that were not included in this letter. Now, they would get them because it's written to all churches, but these churches are hand-picked in order for the Lord to point out some things as to what is pleasing in his eyes for the church and what is not pleasing. So that's, we've been through that and pulled out and picked what he wants us to do, what he doesn't want us to do, how he evaluates us, and what some of the eternal blessings are. Now, verse 12, see, John, this is instructions to John. And he says, I turned to see the voice. Okay, where the voice coming from? That was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. You're going, what? Well, let's see, if you know something about the tabernacle and the temple, you'll know there's a lamp stand in the tabernacle. And it was the only light in the holy place that was to be found there. But here are seven lampstands. So what does this mean? Doesn't that elicit the question in your head? What's this about? If you're really trying to learn from it. And he says that in the midst of the lampstands, he gets better. <laughs> he turns and sees these seven lampstands. The same one. Literally, it's what it's saying is one like has been there before. And he's referring to something in the past, which I think takes us to Daniel 7, the one seated on the throne, where there the Son of Man sits. There the Ancient of Days is found, having been clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, usually the mark of a priest, and having been girded across his breast with a golden belt. So... <clears throat> Here is the voice. And it says his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Yeah, that's quite a picture, isn't it? There's a lot of people trying to capture what John is seeing here, and you can see some artist renditions. We, we of course, don't have the snapshot or the camera shot of that being passed down from John to us. But you can get somewhat of an idea. And, and John is painting a picture through the Holy Spirit. Is he not? He's wanting us to try and visualize what is going on here. What he is seeing. And he's trying to, to communicate this. He's like white wool. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now fire in scripture can be judgment. Or it can be purification. And sometimes it's both. He's getting ready to render judgment. And he is getting ready to purify this planet for a millennial kingdom. Now we know that because we've read ahead. But just staying in the context right now. This is what John is seeing. And he says, And his feet were the same as polished bronze. Bronze in scripture is a picture of judgment. Uh, you find the, the bronze... We're all the way back to the tabernacle. Some of the pillars were set in bronze sockets. I mean, the, the, the whole concept of bronze as a picture of judgment was been established for 2,000 years before John, 1,500 years before John. Having been refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now, the interesting thing about being around the ocean and uh, is the roar that is there. And being around the ocean often has a said to have a calming effect unless there's a hurricane coming in. But it's often and what is part of that calming effect? Well, there's a power displayed in the roaring of the waves. And it in a sense, if you realize how utterly powerless you are against the uh, against the ocean, 
that, that can have a calming effect because you submit in the process. I remember once a long time ago I was going to learn to surfboard. Now I was pretty athletic. Helen and I had been married too long. We were down at Corpus Christi. And I thought, nah, I'm going to surf. Okay, looks easy. So I ought to be able to surf. So I rented this surfboard. And I had a great respect for the ocean. Translated, I was scared to death of it. So <laughs> I paddled this thing out. And first of all, the waves weren't real big, which I was thankful for. But I paddled this thing out to try and catch a wave. I mean, I've been listening to the Beach Boys for years. You ought to be able to surf. If you, if you know the Beach Boys songs, it just, you know, if everybody had an ocean across the U.S. Anyway, I was out there, and I got that. I couldn't get on that surfboard to save me. There was no way to get up on the surfboard, much less stand on it. And finally, I was turned every which way but loose. But loose. I rented it for an hour, and I got turned sideways holding the surfboard and the biggest wave of the day caught me and <laughs> the next thing you know I'm on dry land it just spit me back up on the beach <laughs> so and it also spit me on the beach about a half mile south of where the stand was I rented the <laughs> so I've been slowly drifting <laughs> down here trying to catch a wave so I took the surfboard back with the 30 minutes remaining on the hour, checked it back in. So the ocean is a powerful force. And you, you realize that and you, you submit to it. He said, his voice like a lot of waters. In other words, you might as well submit to it. What John was impressed with, with the Lord Jesus Christ. What a powerful voice. He gets a picture. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He knows he means business. He's got a long road robe. He's got a golden girdle across. He's a priest that is standing there. Priest executed the judgment under the Mosaic law. So here is the high priest who has come back and he has got eyes of a flame of fire and he's ready for business. In other words, he's a man you better submit to. This is John's grasp. Now verse 16 <coughs> It says, and in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is not the Machaira. This is not the 18-inch sword <coughs> Roman soldiers carried. It's the Ramphaya, which is about eight inches taller than me. A six-foot sword is what a Ramphaya was. And it says, where did it come from? Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now what did he have in his mouth in Revelation 19? That six-foot bronze sword riding a horse. Okay, Ramphaya. So, the Lord means business. And it says, And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Now John is inviting us to try and visualize what we're what he's describing with his words because he can't send us an email down through the centuries so he is painting a word picture with the vocabulary he has trying to tell us what he's looking at <clears throat> now jesus had selected seven messengers that's the stars how do i know that because i've read ahead this is a lesson in letting the bible interpret itself Okay. We have a tendency to read stuff like this and start reading things into things like this instead of just you keep reading, then you read it again, read it again, because the Bible will interpret itself if you let it in so many different areas. Now, the, it interprets itself in enough areas that in some of the places that it doesn't, you can understand what he's getting at. You can fill in the blanks. But until you have the, those those things interpreted that are known quantities you can't work on the unknowns without a whole lot of speculation he selected seven messengers these are stars to protect bestow authority and to guide while wielding a broadsword of judgment based on his word it's in his right hand Jesus is the overpowering light now look at that little picture. His face was like the sun shining in its power. 
So how does John get this picture? This is an amazing picture. He's in the middle of seven lampstands right now. And how would you respond? Hey, Lord, good to see you. See, John knew who he was. And when I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Wow. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. Now, this is the weak negative with the present imperative full bet on it. says, stop it. Now, do you think he may have said that to John before? Multiple times. He said, stop being afraid. Out on the Sea of Galilee. Over and over again. But, this time, he touched him. See what he did? He laid his right hand on him, saying... Stop being afraid. We know how that goes. Sometimes there is just a a touch that is designed to calm someone's fears. When a child is afraid and scared to death, what frequently does a parent do? They take hold of them, right? They embrace them. They, They grab hold of them. They'll take their hand. What did the Lord do to John? Yeah, John had already written an epistle. He says, Behold, little children, what I'm getting ready to tell you. And now John was the child. So the Lord touched him. And he said, I am. Another one of these, I am. Ego I me. I myself am. The first and the last. Protos means before all things. First in a sequence of things. It's not the part of arche of being first in authority or power. So this is I'm the first and ho eschatos, the last. I'm it, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I myself am the first and the last. Now this is John, remember, one of the original sons of thunder. Remember the remember this one. Back when they were walking with the Lord, he and his brother James got the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. So what does the Lord do? He, he calms him down quite a bit. He was overpowered when he saw the unveiled glory of the Lord. Isn't he the one that said, Lord, you want us to call down fire out of heaven and wipe these people out because they're not following you? So they got the name Sons of Thunder, the nickname. And what happened? How does he show up with John? He's got his attention because the trumpet got his attention. And he was already in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Remember? The trumpet got his attention. And he was overwhelmed when he saw the unveiled glory of the Lord, his face shining as the sun. He touched him to comfort him. Jesus touched him to comfort him and spoke somewhat familiar words. See, the touch brings comfort. You know, when... One of the prohibitions of the Mosaic Law, when you even think about touching and you start thinking about allusions to the Old Testament and all, there were some things you weren't even permitted to touch under the Mosaic Law. One of which was a leper. You were not permitted to touch a leper. It's interesting when Jesus healed the lepers, footnote, no extra charge, he healed them before he touched them because it was against the law to touch a leper. And the, the Greek tenses, the aorist participles, when he reached out to touch them, he healed them before he touched them. Pretty cool. The touch to a leper is so important and comforting to them because people don't touch them. They still don't touch them today. If someone, if you... If, you've ever met one if you're in a leper colony we were visited one in vietnam in the 97 it was a halfway house i guess you could call it they had been through in the leper colony they were coming out and they had been without human touch for some of them years and they were being observed in this little grass hut village where they kept building a church and the authorities kept burning it down okay they had not had any touch, and when we were when we came in, the first thing we shook hands with them, we give them hugs. We didn't realize at that point in time, I didn't, how important that was to them, because they'd had such little 
human contact over the course of time. But that touch to a person who's afraid, who's an outcast, means a lot. And John was scared to death. So he calmed him down. He, <laughs> he, he didn't want John so upset, so nervous, so scared, he couldn't listen to what he was saying. So he calms him down. Identity and courage is not based on what we are, but on who he is. As he has always been and he always will be. If you have an identity, your identity is in Christ. It's based on who he is. See, that should bring comfort to all of us, no matter what we run into in this life. And he says, I am the first and the last and the living one. The living one. And I was. <laughs> I like this. This is the word genomai, which means he became. See, he's always been, <laughs> always been alive, but he says, I became dead. What happened? Who's he? He's telling John exactly who he is. He's his friend Jesus who died, really died, became dead. Aorist tense is a point of time. Middle is he's actively involved. The indicative is this historical fact. I became dead and behold. Pay attention, John. I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, what kind of power is John talking to? The supreme power of the universe. So Jesus is not only the first and last, but everything in the middle. That's who he is. Those who know him and have chosen to serve him, his bondservants, his doulos, should have no fear as they listen to what this book has to say. So how does this apply to you and me 2,000 years after this was written? Are you a bondservant of the Lord? You shouldn't have any fear about what you're getting ready to read. None. Even if you're going to live through it, you shouldn't have any fear about it. The 144,000 male virgin Jews, they shouldn't have any fear about actually living through the tribulational time, time period. The application to us, you read this, people say, I don't want to read the Bible, it's too scary. You know, I've heard somebody refer to, oh, one of the many prophecies of the last days. That's in the last week that I heard that somewhere on the television. And, well, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of books that have prophecies about the last days. And it's kind of like, well, which one do we pick? Well, I can tell them which one to pick because it's never been wrong. Those other ones have seldom been right. But <clears throat> they shouldn't have any fear. There are some tough things in here. There's some bad stuff that's going to happen to this planet above and beyond Charlotte toilet, Sherman toilet paper. <clears throat> There's going to be some rough stuff happening. There will be a star falling out of heaven. Second trumpet judgment. Fourth trumpet judgment. There will be a star fall from heaven. The, the, the ecology will be messed up beyond all oblivion. People will wonder how they're even alive anymore is how bad the planet will be. Is it going to be climate change like you never thought possible? Is it going to be man-made? No. That's not the problem. The problem is judgment from the Almighty. And see, that's where they messed up. You still have people worshiping nature and the environment and cursing the God of the heaven. Chapter 16. They never did figure it out. Now, <clears throat> Jesus holds in his possession the solutions to the problems of death and hell. And notice this sequence. I am the living one. I am alive forevermore. I have, I possess the keys to death and hell. Now, all right. Verse 19. Right, therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. 
We're going to see that phrase, metatuta, after these things multiple times throughout this book. It always advances the sequence of events. It is a chronological tag. It is the type of thing that you look for when you're trying to figure out what came when. When you're reading any book, and especially the, the Bible, you have to ask who, what, when, where, why, and how. Who is speaking? Who are they speaking to? What are they saying? When is it applicable to? Simple questions you ask any book you read in any time in history. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? You don't always get the answer to the whys or the hows. But you ought to be able to figure out who's talking, who are they talking to. And that will clear up so much. I've had pastors tell me that we've taught in other countries that one of the most valuable things and foundations is the thing that said, ask of every text who, what, when, where, why, and how, and identify who's talking, who they're talking to. Because it clears up so many problems. He says the things that will take place Present tense of mellow, it says, are going to happen. And then it's followed by genomai come into existence. It's going to become something. What? After these things. Now, he is supposed to write down what? About the seven stars, the seven lampstands, the one of the seven. So John is writing this stuff down, and he's been commanded to write. All of these things are designed to bless those who read and apply what is written. All of these things in this book, chapter 1, verse 3, they should be constantly kept in focus in the church. The church is to pay attention to this book. In the history of the church, sometimes the, church, the book has been avoided. We kind of went through that in the introduction. Some of the church leaders refuse to write commentaries on it. They don't want to teach on it. A lot of the big mega churches today won't touch the book of Revelation. They don't want anything to do with it. You know why? Because prophecy seems to divide people. Have you ever noticed that everybody's got their own opinion about prophecy? Seems to divide, so they don't want to put anything out there that may possibly divide. So as a result, they end up not teaching truth. They throw out dispensations. They think we're going to bring in the millennial kingdom. I got news for them. It's not what the book says. Try as you might. You're not going to be the ones hammering your swords into plowshares. It's not going to happen. The one to whom John is speaking is the one that transcends all the events mentioned. That's which is getting ready to be unfolded in this book. Now, verse 20 says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, Here's the interpretation. The seven stars are the angels, the angelos, the messenger of the seven churches. The root meaning of angelos uh, is the same as the root meaning in Hebrew, malach, same uh, concept, just different languages. And the root meaning is a messenger. It can refer to a heavenly being, a supernatural being, or it can refer to a human being. John the Baptist, or the baptizer, however you want to call him, was called an angelos. Okay? But he was a human being. He wasn't a messenger out of the heavenly places. But he came with a divine message. The root meaning of the word is a messenger. So you have to keep that, uh, you have to keep that in mind as you see this word often translated angel, and, and but always it involves a message that's being carried. The seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, what God did was establish a primary messenger for each church. Okay, are These seven churches that he told John to write to. Right? He gave them a, a message to take to these seven churches, gave them the list, gave them the sequence, and he said, I want you to write it. And when he gives them the letter for that particular church, then he is, he is, it's going to be in that sequence. Remember, this is on a scroll. So it's a big, long parchment that is laid out there, and when he gets to one part, he seals it. So here is the 
the scroll. So the scroll is going to go to all seven churches, and all seven churches are going to see what's written to all the other churches. So it is a it's designed to to commend the good behavior and out the bad as to what's going on. Now, he established a primary messenger for each church. We've been through that. To the angel of the church at is the messenger of the church at. And I believe is the primary communicator. You could call it an elder, call it a pastor, call it whatever you want, but it's the one that's in charge of the message. Could have been that's um, probably gone with the gift of prophet, but it's the key leader of the church responsible for the communication of the message that is there. So he said that's where he wants it to go to, and he interprets it for us. The church sheds more usable light as a lampstand than the star of that church. Think about this. Because what did he say? The seven stars are the messengers but the seven lampstands are the churches. What sheds more light, more usable light? Is it the stars in the heavens or the lampstands? Okay, It's the lampstands, isn't it? So it's not the stars that are the star of this show. It is the churches that are to be the lampstands out into the nation. The Bible is teaching us to let it interpret itself. See, if we'd have gone off into Never Never Land back a few verses before, we could have ended up with all kinds of interpretations of the stars and the lampstands and everything else. And what did he do? He interpreted it for us. And see, the Lord's good at that. He gave the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower, they said, well, how do we understand this? And he said, now follow me, guys. He says, learn this. Learn the parable of the sower. And he says, uh, and he gave, he, he says, because by this you'll be able to interpret all the parables. So the Lord taught his disciples the hermeneutics of parables. And I've taught hermeneutics. And it's sad when I go in and I get hermeneutics of parables that somebody has put together and they don't even refer to what the Lord said there. Because the Lord is the one that taught us how to interpret a parable. Don't go too far astray with the symbolism and everything, but get the main point with what he's, what he's saying and realize it's literal. He's teaching a spiritual principle off a literal thing. Now, <clears throat> what do we have next? The seven churches. The things that must take place after these things. What are these things coming up? The seven churches which are, right? So after the seven churches aren't, <laughs> Anymore, There are going to be things happen after those seven churches. So it's setting a context for us. Now, we've been through the letters to the seven churches. And we've pulled out what it means to be an overcomer, what makes the Lord happy, what he's unhappy with. We have looked at uh, Ephesus, Smyrna. Smyrna is the, the church, the persecuted church that uh, endures. One of the two churches that didn't have any uh, corrections they needed to make. We saw Pergamum, church being infiltrated by evil, but still a viable uh, church. We saw Thyatira, where the church was, was actually infiltrated by evil. We saw the church at Sardis, which you have a reputation of being alive, but you're really dead, so you you, you, you think you're something, but you're really not because you, you still <laughs> missed the point. Philadelphia, the church of the open door. This is the, the greatest evangelistic time in the history of the world because these seven churches represent seven eras of church history. And how do we know that? Because it's all prophecy. It all has a prophetic significance. And then the letter to Laodicea. And I think that's where we are now. The United States has been there for a while, and sadly, a lot of the, or a lot of the rest of the, the churches in the world are following our suit, and that's a mistake. They bought into prosperity theology. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of weird what you see when you go into some of the countries, African countries, and uh, David is there with me in Ghana, and we went in there and. 
everything you see is God's garage. Okay? Holy Spirit transmission service. Okay? They, and why do they do that? Because it's it's part of their superstitions. Okay? If we can attribute this part of their their uh, African jujuism, and they try to put everything together in, into one deal, thinking they'll eventually get it right. So they're using these as as magic charms, using God's name as magic charms, and just missing the point. Here is, and what did they buy into? Prosperity theology. It's all over Africa. Now, this is the outline so far. Basic introduction. John, what he's doing there, how he got there. Things that he saw. The introduction. The things which are, chapter 2 and 3, those are seven churches. And now the things which will be from here to 22.5. This is, this is pure prophecy. And it's beautiful to watch. Now, Revelation 4.1 is the one on the throne. And it says, after these things. See that phrase? Came up again. After what things? That's a normal question to ask, right? You say, after, okay, what are the these here? That's the events of chapter 2 and 3. After these things. John saw the Lord. Okay, he's getting ready to enter into the church age. He's got a prophetic sequence after these things. And the phrase is used nine times in the book of Revelation. First use we just saw in 119. This is the second and third use of this phrase to be found. And it clearly denotes a sequence of events. So he says, After these things I, this is John, I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven. Now, <clears throat> this, is, this is the perfect passive participle of the word anoigo. A-N-O-I-G-O. Uh, oigo is a word that, that means to open and ana means up. That door having been opened up. It's almost like a gate that is raised up to get it inside. A door having been opened in heaven. It's perfect tense. So it says the door has been permanently opened. Okay? It's open. Who opened the door? The Lord opened the door, right? So, a door having been opened, this word is used for openings uh, for the spread of the gospel of Christ. And it is used as, as the door to the rapture in the fifth chapter of James, verse 7 and 8. It's used in the plural in Matthew 24, 33 and Mark 13, 29. Now, you have to stop and think a little bit because that is the Olivet Discourse. That's when the Lord has four of his disciples on the mountain the week of the cross giving them the prophetic framework, prophetic layout of what is going to happen. And he gives them this information and one of the things that he says is know that when these things happen, that summer is near even at the doors. D-O-O-R-S. Now, your English translations translate that as a singular, even at the door. But it is a plural. It's a plural in both Matthew 24:33 and Mark 13:29. So it's not a mistake. There are no textual variants in there anywhere, meaning it could be a, a read, misreading somewhere. Whenever the Lord spoke it, even at the doors is exactly what he said. Now, there's more than that tells us there's more than one door into the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom, more than one door. Now, when would the first door be? The rapture. When would the second door be? Second advent. Know that he is there even at the doors. So it indicates there's more than one way to get into the kingdom. And it says, in the first voice that I heard. Now, we jumped over two chapters. Remember? Back in chapter 1, verse 10, the first voice he heard was Jesus Christ himself. 
like the sound or voice of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here. Now this is the word anaba. It's the way it shows up. It's an aorist active imperative of anabino. So the word itself comes out, hanaba. That's powerful all by itself, isn't it? It's just a a very simple word. Anabino is used 82 times. It's used three times in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, of Christ's ascension into heaven when he was called up into heaven after his resurrection then standing there and he was caught up into heaven it's used three times to describe that that kind of gives you maybe a clue because in the way that he has gone the same way he's going to come and we're going to go meet him that maybe he's talking here about the rapture I've heard people say where is the rapture mentioned in the book of Revelation that's why I'm making a big deal out of this right here Right here is one of the places that it's mentioned. Not the only place, but one of the places that it is mentioned. It's a door permanently open in heaven. And he says to John, come up here. Now what's going to happen at the rapture? A loud voice, <laughs> right? Boom, a voice, an archangelic voice. And I will show you Actually, this word is used in Revelation 11:12 too, of the ascension of the two witnesses. When the two witnesses die and lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, and it is time for them to be resuscitated, resurrected, guess what words used to describe that? Looks, <laughs> looks to me like it's a pretty good clue. He says, come up here. And I will show you, John, what must take place after these things. Okay? What must take place? It's the fulfillment of the balance of prophecy. What is left to be fulfilled after these things? It's the seven eras of the church age after these things. After the seven eras of the church age, here is going to be the time of the rapture. Now this section is going to deal with events that take place after Revelation 2 and 3 and the judgment seat of Christ. Now that fits in at about the same time the rapture will happen, judgment seat will happen. Here we see these events. The word behold. It's always a beautiful word. We, it skip, we skip over it so many times. It says, and behold. Somebody, behold means stop and pay attention. It comes from harao. Take a good long look at it because it has meaning. The word behold indicates there is information here useful to the church even though the church will not be present. The rapture is the first of two doors into the millennial kingdom. And I mentioned that in those passages in Matthew and Mark the word door is used in the plural although the translations I don't translate it as a plural. The command to come up here is a picture of the rapture. Sounds a lot like 1 Thessalonians 4. And the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, Comfort one another with these words. That whole picture of the rapture recorded by Paul is designed for us to encourage one another. What we are called to do. Because it's going to get tough before the rapture. And it's going to, and after the rapture, <laughs> people that were here before the rapture and people that are after the rapture say, I, I long for the good old days. Okay? Before the rapture. Because it's going to get really bad after that. Now, we've got to the heavenly visit here, and I've kind of went on and on, uh, and I've run out of time. I could talk for days on this, which I've done before. But here we're going to get in chapter 4 a picture, the scene in heaven, closely after the, the rapture of the church, and we, got, we have the opening of the 
uh, sealed judgments that is coming up in chapter 5, the beginning of the tribulation. It doesn't mean a period of time has, has uh, lapsed because heaven does not know time as we know time. And you, you think about the... It takes a long time, and I still don't have my head fully wrapped around that. But the eternal state doesn't have a clock. It's a sequence of events. That's what eternity is about. It's a sequence of events. But how long did it take to do it? Doesn't matter. How long will it take all of us to stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ? All the believers... You're talking earth time or heaven time? See, earth time we might go, gosh, it would take a thousand years to do that. With the Lord, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Huh. What I can tell you, in heaven time, it isn't going to take long to do it. In earth time, they'll be too busy trying to sort through the videotapes of everybody disappearing while this is all going on. So it's not the judgment seat of Christ. Yeah, you'll get your personal interview with the Lord because we all must stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ. How long is your interview going to take? Earth time or heaven time? Earth time, I don't know. Heaven time, long as you need. But it's not going to affect the time on this planet. It's hard for us to wrap our head around eternity. But eternity is just a succession of events. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your grace and mercy and love. Thank you for all your blessings and your test. And, Father, I pray that we will be encouraged by this portion of your word. And, Father, that we will tell others that uh, what's coming on this earth is not good, but you don't have to be here. There is a way out, and there's a door standing open in heaven waiting for you. And through that and that door is Jesus himself that's the only way to go through it father we pray you'll be with us and guide us in Jesus name amen